0: Well I am excited because today we're kicking off our new study in the book of Galatians and we know that the whole Bible is the word of God. We know it's all special. But Galatians is really special. It's really special. Galatians is the book you read when you need to have the gospel preached to you. It always leaves me in a a state of profound gratitude toward the Lord. It blesses me in the deepest parts of my soul because it takes the gospel from my head and it moves it down to my heart. And I think we all need that on a regular basis. If you ever get to the place where the gospel and the thought of Jesus saving you is no longer moving you emotionally, Galatians is a wonderful book to revisit. It's a letter, an epistle written by the Apostle Paul And we need to get some context before we dive into our study. And so we're just gonna start by reacquainting ourselves with Paul. I know we talked about him when we went through 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, but we're gonna touch on him again and in a little more detail. If you've forgotten, the Apostle Paul was about five years younger than Jesus, but he was not a follower of Jesus during the time which Jesus was on the earth. Paul was born in the city of Tarsus, which is in modern-day Turkey. Being born there was the reason that Paul was born into Roman citizenship, which was fairly unusual for a Jew. Paul was raised devoutly Jewish. His parents named him Saul after Israel's first king. Later, he would be known as Paul, which isn't a new name. It's just the Roman version of the name Saul. He grew up as a prodigy. He studied under the best Jewish teacher in the world at the time, Gamaliel, and rose to become a member of the Pharisees, the ruling religious and political group in Israel at that time. Later, he would rise even higher to become a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish political council that ruled Israel from Jerusalem under the authority of the Romans. While we can't know for sure, these timelines and Paul's position make it extremely likely that Paul would have been present at the crucifixion of Jesus and very possibly at other elements of his arrest and trial. When the church came into existence in 33 AD, it didn't take very long for the Jews to begin considering it a blasphemous cult and begin persecuting Christians. And Paul was so zealous about his Judaism, so sure that he was serving God, that he passionately joined in this persecution of Christians, taking initiative and spearheading operations to beat, imprison, and most likely even kill Christians. In fact, Paul stands by and holds the coats of the group of men who stone Stephen to death, making him the first martyr in recorded history for the church. But then something amazing happens. Many of you know the story, Paul has a direct and supernatural encounter with Jesus as he's traveling to the Syrian city of Damascus to persecute Christians there. And we won't get into all the details of that story. You can read about it in chapter nine of the book of Acts. It's it's extraordinary. Receiving direct revelation from Jesus, as he did when he first met him on the Damascus road, would become one of the hallmarks of Paul's life and ministry. In Damascus, after being healed of the blindness that the Lord had struck him with on the road to Damascus, Paul becomes a believer and he starts getting into serious discussions with the Jewish leaders. And he's frustrating them because he's using the scriptures that they believe in to prove that Jesus was the Messiah, the same Jesus that they had just called to be crucified. They don't want to hear it. And about three months after his conversion, Paul is forced to flee Damascus. This is going to become a theme of his ministry, having to flee because people want to kill him. You sort of get the vibe as you study the life of Paul that he's a guy that can't really tell when a conversation is starting to get a little murdery. You know, like someone might kill you. Paul, that just seems to go right over Paul's head because time and time again, he's either beaten to within an inch of his life or somebody else has to say, Paul, it's time to go now. We need to go right now, Paul. And it happens over and over again in his ministry. So around that time, Paul heads out to some unknown little town in the wilderness of Arabia where he stays for about three years. All we know is that during that time, he's studying the scriptures. We assume because... He wants to reconcile all this education he received as a Jew, all this teaching he received from Gamaliel about the Messiah. He's gotta reconcile all that information with what he now knows is reality, which is that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. He is the Messiah, and he's gotta figure out, okay, how do I make this connection? And during those three years, he'll make the claim in the book of Galatians that he's taught directly by the Lord Jesus. We don't know what form that takes. We don't know if Jesus makes a physical appearance to him or speaks to him audibly or guides his thoughts, but he is taught directly by the Lord Jesus in the wilderness of Arabia during that time. And we know that it's true because the teaching that Paul emerges with lines up perfectly with what the apostles were teaching even though he hadn't yet met them at that time. So after those three years in the Arabian wilderness, Paul comes back to the city of Damascus And then he makes his first trip finally to Jerusalem where he stays with Peter the Apostle and James the brother of Jesus who is actually the leader of the Jerusalem church. Fun side trivia, James is actually the leader of the Jerusalem church, not Peter according to most historical information and he hangs out in Jerusalem for about 15 days. Then he heads back to ultimately his hometown of Tarsus where he stays for around 10 years, 10 years until Barnabas brings him to Antioch, which had become the most flourishing church outside of Jerusalem. It's very interesting, Paul's ministry begins with a bang, radical conversion on the way to Damascus, into the Arabian wilderness, taught by Jesus for three years, back to Damascus, back to his hometown of Tarsus, and then there's just this, this at least a decade where we don't really know what Paul is doing. We can safely assume he's getting into heated discussions with local Jews. I think that's a pretty safe assumption and annoying many of them with his brilliance and understanding of the word of God. But for all we know, he's, he's working a regular job, studying, continuing to grow in his knowledge of the Lord Jesus during that time. Barnabas shows up, says, listen, we gotta get you to Antioch. God is doing something in the city of Antioch. And Antioch had become sort of this center of church activity. It was the most crucial and influential church outside of Jerusalem. So Barnabas and Paul go to Antioch and they teach together there for about a year. And then they make a trip to Jerusalem to take famine relief funds to the believers in Jerusalem. That trip takes place a full 14 years after Paul's conversion. They meet privately with all the apostles who are still there in Jerusalem, and that's when they all validate Paul's ministry and message. After this, Paul and Barnabas undertake a missionary journey that you can read about in Acts 13 and 14. They leave from the church in Antioch and they go and plant churches in other cities in this Roman province of Galatia, Galatia, in the southern part of it, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. The Galatians were actually from the area of Gaul, which is why it's called Galatia. And Gaul is just modern-day France. They had a Celtic ethnic background and they migrated down to Turkey where they all sort of stuck together in this region called Galatia. Now at this point we need to pause Paul's story to introduce some new cast members, the Judaizers. They were not an a cappella vocal group, something very, very different. We have to realize that when the church was born in Acts chapter two in 33 AD, it was a brand new entity made up of Jews and Gentiles. And I don't think we really appreciate the intense awkwardness that came along with this sudden thrusting together of two people groups who had generally not associated with each other up to that point in history. All of a sudden, overnight, they became family. And in many cities that went about as smoothly as one might expect. So just imagine the awkwardness you're all gonna be like, oh, that wouldn't be awkward for me at all, Jeff, and you're all gonna be lying, so don't say it out loud, okay? Imagine the awkwardness if you've been raised, you spent your whole life in a church that's been exclusively made up of people of your ethnicity, your culture, your skin color, all that stuff, and then all of a sudden you show up at church one day and suddenly half the church is a different ethnicity, different culture, different sense of humor, different foods, Different style of worship. They're clapping on the offbeat. (laughs) Now let's keep it real. I mean, we would all pretend like this was a great thing. We would be like, oh, praise God. The the family of God is so diverse. There's so, so many flavors. This is wonderful. But at the same time, if we're honest, no matter who you are, there would be this period of awkwardness as you suddenly have to learn how to interact and and associate with a people group that's completely foreign to you and inside you would be thinking that's not how we do that it's not how we do that don't know what they're doing but that's not how we do that and that's what was happening in the church you see the Jews had been raised with the Old Testament scriptures They were religiously educated. They've been raised their whole lives to believe that they were ethnically superior to all other people groups. The saying about Gentiles was, Gentiles exist because hell needs firewood, basically. So that's right. Racism was an issue in the early church, a significant issue in the early church. But it ran deeper than that, especially for the Jews, because you see, for them, overnight, overnight, their sacred law was completed in Jesus, just done away with. Oh yeah, you know those laws that you spent your whole life learning, memorizing, and learning how to follow? Yeah, they're done. Their sacred locations, Jerusalem and the temple, were no longer vital to them practicing their religion. They didn't have to make pilgrimages for feasts anymore. They didn't have to make sacrifices at the temple. And what about the priesthood of the Levites? Well, that was completed too. When the curtain in the temple tore in two, Jesus became the new high priest, the only one that we ever need. Yeah, yeah, we don't don't need those anymore. When any of us give our lives to Jesus, we find our identity in him. That's one of the things that that God does in you. When you come to the Lord, part of that sanctification process is he goes to work helping you to find your identity in him, calling you to stop finding your identity in anything else. And for some Jews who believe Jesus was the Messiah, their identity as Jews was too important and too difficult for them to give up for a new identity in Jesus. And some of these Jews became those who are called Judaizers in the New Testament. The Judaizers will feature prominently in Paul's letters to the Galatian church, letter or singular, sorry. And indeed, they were prominent players in many of Paul's missionary journeys, not in a good way. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah, they just didn't fully receive the message, the gospel that Jesus preached they believed that you were saved by grace. The problem was that they also believed you were saved by keeping the law of Moses. They believed that in order to receive salvation by grace, a man had to first be circumcised in accordance with the Old Testament law. And once you had received salvation by grace, you had to keep the law in order to stay saved. Sort of like Jesus came to give you that that little push over the line of salvation that you couldn't do on your own, but then you had to hold on to your salvation. You had to maintain it by keeping the law and obeying its commands about things like diet. In other words, if your works ever stop being good enough, you might lose your salvation. The general theological for this is legalism, legalism. In contrast to an emphasis on the saving grace of Jesus, the legalist emphasizes rule keeping, rule keeping. The three R's of legalism are rules, regulations, and rituals, rules, regulations, and rituals. Those things run the life of every legalist. And these Judaizers were having a real effect on the churches in Galatia these churches were starting to buy into their message, buy into their legalism. Jesus had set them free from the requirements of the law, but they were choosing to run back to the law to go under it again because they were buying into this works-based belief system that was being propagated by these Judaizers. So now we hop back to Paul's story. On his first missionary journey, a group of Judaizers from Antioch and Iconium followed him to Lystra, where they spread false rumors about and accusations against him in an attempt to undermine his ministry and stir up a crowd to kill him and Barnabas. In Lystra, Paul comes across a man who is lame. And I don't mean that he was a loser. I mean that he couldn't walk. God moved through Paul and the man was miraculously healed. He stood up and walked. And in response, you might remember this story, the people freak out and begin worshiping Paul and Barnabas they want to offer sacrifices to them and Paul and Barnabas respond by showing their despair and grief by tearing their clothes and saying don't worship us worship God that happens in the morning in the city of Lystra now Julius Caesar said about the Galatians quote they are fickle they are fond of change and they are not to be trusted In other words, they're known for being prone to flip-flopping their position very easily on things. And we see this when, after worshiping Paul and Barnabas in the morning, we find those same Galatians throughout that day buying into the lies being spread by the Judaizers and joining them as a mob to try and stone Paul and Barnabas to death, leaving them for dead outside the city that same evening. Now that's fickle. In the morning, you're worshiping them. In the evening, you're trying to stone them to death. After that, they move on to the city of Derby before retracing their steps to strengthen the churches they had planted on their journey. Paul then stays in Antioch for a few years and he makes another trip down to Jerusalem around A.D. 50-51 for a crucial event known as the Jerusalem Council. You can read about it in Acts 15. The Jerusalem Council was a discussion between Paul and the leaders of the Jerusalem church regarding the question, do Gentile believers need to be circumcised? Do Gentile believers need to be circumcised? And you gotta think there were some new people in the the church saying, man, if you guys could reach a conclusion before the next new members class, that would be terrific. That would be terrific. So the bigger issue being discussed was really what obligations do Gentile believers have to the law of Moses? What part of it do they have to keep? And the right conclusion was reached that we are saved by faith in Jesus, not by anything we do. Jesus fulfilled the law of Moses perfectly and therefore we are no longer obligated to it. However, these issues The Judaizers continued to plague the early church, highlighted by a confrontation between Paul and Peter. Sometime after the Jerusalem Council, after the issue was supposed to have been settled, Peter makes a visit to Antioch, and Paul gets in a confrontation with him about this issue because Peter has backslid to acting as though Gentile believers do need to keep the law of Moses. And we're gonna read about that confrontation in the second chapter of Galatians. Then somewhere between 80, 49 and 52, Paul goes on a second missionary journey, this time with a man named Silas instead of Barnabas, as well as the physician and historian named Luke, who writes the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. And you can read about that journey in Acts 15 to 18. On that second missionary journey, Paul returns to the southern region of Galatia and visits the churches in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, and Tarsus again. On his third ministry journey, which takes place a few years later, Paul will visit the churches in Galatia again. So he has a long-term relationship with these churches. They were very dear to his heart and he plants them and visits them over the course of about a decade multiple times. We know for certain that the letter of Galatians was written somewhere between AD 47 to AD 55, so fairly close to the time of Jesus. Paul mentions the Jerusalem Council in this letter, so we at least know for sure he wrote this after that date. Along with 1 Thessalonians, Galatians is in competition to potentially be the first epistle written by the Apostle Paul. All this background and context will come into play as we study Paul's letter to the Galatians. Because as you may know, the issue of how our behavior and our works works affect our salvation is still a massive issue in the church today. This is far from a settled issue in many churches. There's still confusion and controversy and disagreement among many believers about the relationships between our works and our salvation. There are still those who teach that what Jesus did on the cross gives us a push across the line of salvation, but we have to do good works in order to keep our salvation. And all of us, if we're honest, find ourselves drawn back again and again to acting and living as though we're saved by our good works, by our behavior. We're drawn back again and again to acting like we're our own saviors. We do this anytime we stay away from God because we don't feel good enough. We feel ashamed by our conduct. We do this when we do or don't do certain things because we believe that's what makes us good or bad. In all kinds of different ways, we fall back into living as though we have to earn our salvation or maintain our salvation. That's why this letter is so encouraging and helpful. It is the Magna Carta of living in the freedom of Jesus. If you're interested in a general overview of this epistle, I put it on your outlines, it's all about grace. Chapters one and two is gonna be about Paul's personal experience with God's grace. Chapters three and four are gonna be his teaching on grace, helping us understand God's grace. And then chapters five and six are gonna be about how to live in God's grace. So as we get into the text after the world's longest introduction, you need to know that Paul is in a fighting mood. He's in a fighting mood. He is mad that these precious believers are being led back into the burden of trying to earn their salvation when Jesus has already saved them and set them free. He's mad at those who are teaching this false gospel and he's mad that there are believers who are believing this false gospel. Paul's going to write from the heart and he's going to aim at their hearts as well, not just at their minds. He begins in verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So even in his greeting here, Paul is taking on some of the rumors and false accusations the Judaizers have been leveling against him in Galatia. They've been saying things like, Paul's not a real apostle. He wasn't one of the 12 who walked with Jesus when he was on the earth. Paul's got no real credentials as an apostle. And so Paul says, listen, Jesus Christ himself, the Messiah, appointed me an apostle when he called me to ministry and revealed himself to me on the road to Damascus, then personally taught me for three years in the wilderness of Arabia. Stick those facts in your pipe and smoke them. That's how he's opening this letter. Verse two, and then he says, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches in Galatia, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. You might recognize that grace and peace are part of Paul's signature greetings that he uses in practically all of his writings. Now to set up what Paul is going to talk about in this letter, he reminds the Galatians of the true gospel message. This is what he says, he says again from verse three, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever, amen. This is the true gospel message. Let's break this down. It's gonna be your first fill in. Firstly, Paul points out we were hopelessly lost and in need of deliverance. He says that he might deliver us. You only need to be delivered if you're in a really bad place or state where you can't save yourself. So Paul says we were hopelessly lost and in need of deliverance. There was and is nothing we could do to save ourselves from our sins. Paul doesn't mention Jesus' teachings or his miracles because the primary purpose of Jesus, the Son of God, leaving the glory of heaven to come to the earth as a man, was not to teach or perform miracles. It was to live and die in our place in order to rescue us from death. When someone says, well, I believe Jesus was simply one of several enlightened teachers who have appeared across history, they have not read what Jesus says about himself in the Bible. His primary ministry was not to teach but to rescue us because we cannot save ourselves. When Paul refers to us being delivered by Jesus from this present evil age, he's referring to the rule of Satan over the earth at this time. Even though we're still on the earth, we are delivered from Satan's kingdom the moment we receive Jesus. We become part of the kingdom of God. So firstly, he says, this is the first part of the gospel, we were hopelessly lost and in need of deliverance. Secondly, he says, Jesus delivered us, Jesus rescued us by giving himself for our sins. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross was substitutionary, meaning he stood in our place. He did those things on our behalf. And many of us need to change our understanding of this. Many of us, still. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection did not give us a second chance to do better. We can never be good enough, even with a billion second chances. No, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection were all on our behalf as though we had done them ourselves. Are you tracking with me? That's why in the eyes of God the Father, you and I are justified, just as if I'd never sinned. When we talk about having victory in Jesus, this is what we're talking about. You see, we sometimes think, man, how am I gonna make it through this life undefiled? How am I gonna make it through this life clean? How am I not gonna mess up everything? How am I not gonna ruin every opportunity between now and the time that I'm supposed to get to heaven? This is what we don't understand. Listen to me. You have already made it through this life undefiled. You've already made it through this life undefiled. You already have. Because Jesus has already lived this life on your behalf and done it perfectly. Maybe this will help us understand. When I was a kid, you know, I used to, I don't know how, but when you grow up in the church, a lot of people get this. I always got this idea. It was like a fear tactic in the church for kids and teens. You know, when you get to heaven, Jesus is gonna roll out the TV cart. Just like when the teacher would bring it into the classroom and you knew it was gonna be an awesome day. But this won't be awesome, because hold on, you don't know what's gonna happen. Now it's heaven, so it's a really, really big TV. And then Jesus is gonna say, bring me the tape. And an angel is like gonna come over with a VHS cassette, right? And everything that you did in your life, everything wrong especially, is going to be on this tape. And when I was a kid, I was like, oh, man, that's scary. Then when you become a teenager, you're like, no, that's terrifying. I was like, heaven is going to be so awkward. It's going to be so awkward. How am I ever going to look at my parents again after we all have to watch this tape together? And, and And so since then, I've learned that the Bible says the only judgment for believers will be for rewards, that everything we do that's, that's meaningless and not for Jesus will just be burned up and done away with, which was the, the greatest thing I ever heard in my life. And some people were like, you mean everything you didn't do for the Lord is just gonna be burned up? That seems kind of tragic. And I was like, no, burn, baby, burn. Get rid of the evidence, yes. Let's stoke this fire up. Let's get this thing going. Now, why is there no judgment like that for believers? Why not? Here's why, because if there was a VHS cassette of everything that you did wrong in your life that would be played in heaven, of everything you did right, of how you lived your life, you know what it would look like? The label along that one thin edge would have Jesus' name on it, and then Jesus' name would be crossed out, and your name would be written on it. And when the tape was put in and played, It would be Jesus' life on the earth. His sinless, perfect life. And we would say, I don't understand. That's not my life. And God the Father would say, did you believe in Jesus to save you? And when you said yes, he would say, then this is your life. This is the life that you lived. So we worry sometimes, how am I gonna make it? How am I gonna make it through this life undefiled? You already have. Jesus lived your life in your place. And when we place our faith in him, we receive his life. That's what that means. That's what it means to live in victory. That's what it means when we say that God doesn't love you based on your performance because the tape he's looking at is the life that Jesus lived. It's just got your name on it. That's the reality of our position in Jesus. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection were substitutionary. They were in your place. You don't have to try and be good enough for God because in his eyes you're already perfect. You've already succeeded, already. I hope that brings somebody some freedom this evening. Then thirdly, Paul says, The true gospel says that God the Father showed his acceptance of Jesus' life and death. God's stamp of approval of Jesus' sinless life and his death on the cross was God the Father raising him from the dead. Write that down. That was the stamp of approval. How did we know that God received it as an adequate substitutionary sacrifice? Because he stamped his approval on what Jesus did by raising him from the dead. Then Paul says, number four, and because of what Jesus has done for us, we have received grace and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ instead of the wrath and judgment that our sins deserve. Instead of wrath and judgment, we have received grace and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally he says, all this was only possible because it was the will of our God and Father meaning that we have a Father in heaven who loves us and is worthy of our worship. That's the true gospel message, and Paul lays it out. That is orthodox Christianity, right there. And so Paul, right at the beginning of his letter to the Galatians says, our starting point is me reminding you of what the gospel actually is. This is what the gospel is. Unlike almost all of his other writings, Paul has no commendation in his letter to the Galatians. No, well done. No, I thank God for your faith. Nothing. Paul even gives the Corinthian church a lengthy commendation. The Corinthian church. Read the book. These guys are still caught up in all kinds of fleshly and sexual sins. Why does Paul have a commendation for them and not the Galatians? Because at least the Corinthians understood the gospel. They were still working on what it means to actually live out of the gospel, but they at least actually understood it. They understood the gospel correctly. The Galatians, on the other hand, were buying into a different gospel that Paul will call in a few verses, no gospel at all. A gospel that teaches salvation by works is no gospel at all. It has no power to save, and it leads to eternal damnation. That's why Paul has no commendation for these Galatians. The subject at hand is too critical and too serious to mess around with. Eternity is at stake. Literally, new believers were joining the churches in Galatia and they weren't being taught the actual gospel, which means they weren't being actually saved. Existing believers were being made powerless by placing their faith in their ability to keep the law of Moses. If things continued on this course, the Galatian churches would cease to exist in a few years or even worse, would continue to exist as churches teaching a false gospel and leading the masses to place their hope in the impotence of work-based salvation. So Paul gets straight to the point. He delivers what's called a polemic, which is a written attack. In this instance, it's against the teaching of the Judaizers. And he does this with the heart of a loving father who's talking to his children with passion, care, and total honesty. But don't miss this. Paul's still writing to believers. He's addressing this letter to believers. And I've shared the dangers that were arising from them believing this false gospel. But I also wanna make you aware of one of the biggest dangers to believers. When we start believing a works-based gospel, we put ourselves under the burden of the law. And trying to live the Christian life that way, trying to earn or maintain your salvation, trying to keep God's favor with your behavior, trying to live that way becomes a crushing weight because your life just becomes full of failure, full of shame, full of guilt and and condemnation and hopelessness and despair over one's ability to actually faithfully follow the Lord. Now, in contrast to that, remember what Jesus said? It's on your outlines. He said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When you and I start believing in a works-based relationship with God, we will find ourselves exhausted under the weight of our failure. And we'll also live completely ineffective lives for the Lord. When we live under the grace of God, we live in freedom, and our souls live in a state of rest. So I wanna ask you honestly, how's your soul doing? How is your soul doing? Is your relationship with God, is following Jesus in your life, is it exhausting? Or is it refreshing? Your answer to that question will probably tell you whether you're living under grace or whether you're living under the law. Would you write this down? Trying to earn God's favor will leave your soul exhausted. Living in God's grace will leave your soul rested. The conflict between the Judaizers and Paul is the same conflict that wages inside every believer. We're tempted and drawn over and over again to stop living in the scandalous, glorious grace of God and return to living as though our behavior is what saves us. As though what we do is what makes us good or what we don't do is what makes us good. So I would just urge you to firstly recognize that about yourself, that that we're all drawn toward that type of thinking. We naturally gravitate toward a performance-based relationship with God because it makes us our own savior. But on the cross, Jesus won us the unconditional acceptance of God, that we might be free from the hopelessness of trying to earn a relationship with God. Paul's writing this to the Galatian believers, but he's also writing to you and me. So as you read this, as we study this, don't imagine this for a group of people long ago in a place far away, but imagine that he's speaking to you as well. and See what the Lord might want to say to you as we get into the text. Verse six, Paul gets straight to it and he says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. Would you underline a different gospel, which is not another? but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert or distort the gospel of Christ. Paul says, it is blowing my mind that you fickle Galatians are so quickly turning away from the grace of God to go back and try and earn your salvation. This isn't simply another gospel. This is no gospel at all. That's what he's saying. So what is a different gospel? What what is Paul talking about? This Other gospel that's no gospel at all. In this instance, it was the message of the Judaizers, that you were saved by the work Jesus had done and by keeping the law of Moses. It's an old formula for creating another gospel. It's the Jesus and formula. You see, since the days of the early church and continuing in our day, there are those who will say, yes, you are saved by all that Jesus did for you, but it's not enough to just believe. You have to also, and then fill in the blank. You have to also be baptized. You have to also receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You have to also go to church every Sunday. You have to also go to confession. Gotta also tithe. You got to go on a missions trip. You got to also evangelize. Whatever it might be, it's the Jesus and formula. It's not the gospel, it's another gospel. And I'm not saying those aren't all good things for believers to do, or those aren't all things that the Holy Spirit will lead a believer to do. I'm saying that they're not necessary for salvation. That's not the gospel. Would you write this down? The Judaizers were teaching the false Jesus and gospel. The false Jesus and gospel. In our day, you'll still hear people say, yeah, yeah, what you're saying is true. That's a great starting point. But you you need to move on to the deeper things of God in order to really maintain your salvation, you know. A true gospel is that we're accepted by God and then we follow him. The Judaizers were teaching the reverse, as do most religions and cults. They were teaching that we have to first do things in order to earn God's salvation. Yes, yes, God, uh, God shows you grace, but you can't receive his grace if you're not circumcised first. False religions teach that we have to earn God's approval, then we're accepted by him. The true gospel teaches you're accepted by God, then you follow him. Paul is saying that anything different to the gospel that he and the apostles were teaching was another gospel, another gospel. Anything that does not recognize Jesus as God is another gospel. Anything that teaches that there's any way to be saved other than through Jesus is another gospel. And then Paul says that these are not actually even different varieties of the gospel. They're no gospel at all. That's what Paul is saying when he refers to a different gospel, which is not another. He's saying it's not really another gospel. It's no gospel at all. Then he goes on in verse 8 and says, But even if we, or an angel, would you underline, an angel from heaven... Preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you. Let him be accursed. And the word accursed there in the King James Bible is a wonderful old English word, anathema. Anathema. Anathema means loathed. It means cursed and excommunicated by the church. The idea is that if anyone or anything preaches a different gospel to them, Paul says, kick him out the church, have nothing to do with them, and consider them to be willingly playing for team Satan. That's what he's saying. He's being that serious. That's what that word anathema means. Probably shouldn't add it to your vocabulary. It's not appropriate to use in everyday conversation. Your barista messes up your Starbucks order. You cannot say anathema. That's, it's not what it's for. It's much more serious than that. But isn't it interesting that Paul says, even if it's an angel from heaven, an angel from heaven, Now, what Paul would seem to be implying is that that this is actually a possibility. Now, what we know is that he's inspired by the Holy Spirit as he writes this. So what angels might allegedly show up and preach a different gospel? Well, how about Moroni, the angel that gave Joseph Smith the revelation that would lead to Mormonism? Or did you know that in Islam... Muhammad received his revelation of the Quran from an angel claiming to be Gabriel who was reading them from tablets in heaven? Or how about Ellen G. White who founded the Seventh-day Adventists and claimed to receive hidden truths in the Bible from a, quote, accompanying angel? The Jehovah's Witnesses who published The Watchtower have claimed multiple times in their own writings to be under the direction of angels. Centuries before any of these supposed revelations were received, the Apostle Paul wrote, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. The Holy Spirit inspired Paul and the other New Testament writers to lock In the gospel with verses like verse 8, making it impossible for anyone to add anything to the gospel without contradicting the gospel. That means that none of those other belief systems can claim to be in harmony with Christianity. None of them can claim to be the continuation or expansion of Christianity because God says in His Word that any gospel other than what Jesus and the apostles preached is satanic in origin and should be treated as such. This also seems like a good place to just remind us that that angels are a type of being. They are a type of being. There are angels who are allied to Jesus and there are angels who have allied themselves to Lucifer when he attempted to usurp God's throne in heaven. Those angels are known now as fallen angels but they are indeed still angels. An angel is a type of being. Some are allied to Jesus, some are allied to Satan. The implication of Paul's words is that a fallen angel, one allied with Satan, might show up, claiming to be an angel from heaven, preaching a different gospel. Which is interesting, because think about this. It means that when all those guys I just mentioned, and girl, claim to have received revelation from an angel, They probably did. They probably did. They probably did have an encounter with a supernatural being who gave them this quote unquote revelation. They probably did not make it up. Muhammad, Joseph, Smith, and all of them were visited in all likelihood by a fallen angel claiming to be from heaven. An angel that is according to Paul, accursed and damned to spend eternity in the lake of fire. Verse nine, Paul reiterates this, he says, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone, would you underline anyone, preaches any, would you underline any, if anyone preaches any other gospel message to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Now this is gonna rub somebody the wrong way, but don't be mad at me, be mad at the word of God because it's true, then go home and deal with it. When a pastor or church Teaches something like, Jesus is not the only way to be saved. That's another gospel. And it's no gospel at all. They're not just a different flavor or a wacky member in the family of God. It's not different strokes for different folks. According to Paul, they are to be treated as though they are cursed. Willingly allied with Satan. Please understand this. We can have dinner and hang out with non-believers. We should. We should have people in our lives that don't know the Lord that we're trying to lead to him. We cannot ever hang out or have any type of relationship with any pastor or church or church leader or teacher who claims to be a Christian but is actively trying to teach another gospel in the church of Jesus. Are you tracking with me? Paul says, Let him be accursed. Zero tolerance policy. This is not one of those cases where, like, well, maybe I can win him back with love. No, that is not what Paul is talking about. Throughout much of the New Testament, the person who tries to sell believers on another gospel is referred to as a wolf. It's where we get the saying a wolf in sheep's clothing from. It's someone who comes into the church pretending to be one of the sheep of Jesus' flock, but they're really a wolf who is trying to devour people's faith with false teaching. And where wolves show up in Scripture, they're always given the same treatment as Paul gives them here. They're not to be loved They're not to be hugged into repentance. They're not to be indulged or tolerated in any way. They are not to be given an audience or a platform. They're to be publicly rebuked, and the people of the church are to have nothing to do with them. And you know what always happens when someone actually shoots the wolf? I don't mean literally, but deals with the wolf that way? The immature in Jesus always say, why are you being so mean to that sheep? Because the immature believer doesn't have the discernment or know enough about the word of God to recognize that it's a wolf in sheep's clothing. They're completely fooled and they think you're being mean and intolerant. You are being intolerant. But because the Bible told you to, because the issue is that... Serious. Paul says that the gospel he's preached up to this point, the gospel the other apostles had preached up to this point, which is recorded for us in scripture, is the only authoritative and true gospel message. He says that even if he changes his message, he should be considered anathema. Even he should be considered accursed. So if you or I are ever in a church where the pastor teaches any other gospel for any reason, with any justification, He's to be considered anathema. If you're an elder in that church, you're to try and get him removed from his position. If you're not an elder, you need to get out of there. The end, the end. Paul says, anyone, let me say that again. Anyone who teaches another gospel is to be accursed. Well, what if it's, do they fall under the umbrella of anyone? Then let them be accursed. But what if there's a relationship there and we've been friends for a really long time and they've made an impact on my life? Do they fall under the umbrella of anyone? Let them be accursed. You can either offend them or you can offend Jesus. That's the choice. Would you write this down? Paul instructs believers to have nothing to do with anyone who is attempting to teach another gospel in the church. Anyone who is attempting to teach another gospel in the church. So I'm not talking about believers who are confused or immature. I'm talking about people who are trying to teach a false gospel in the church, another gospel. They're trying to get other people in the church to believe this false gospel. Can't have anything to do with them. No relationship whatsoever. The message of Galatians is the message of the gospel. We're more lost and wicked than we ever dreamed possible. But we're also more loved and accepted by God through Jesus than we ever dared to hope. I like what Tim Keller says. He says, in the gospel, we're both brought lower and raised higher than we could ever imagine. There's nothing that will change your life more than when it hits you. I mean, really hits you that God loves you and his love for you is not dependent on anything that you do. You didn't earn his love and you can't lose his love because of anything you did. He just loves you, not because of anything you will or won't do in the future. He loves you because he made you and God made you to love you. I want you to really hear that. God loves you because he made you and God made you to love you. His love for you does not go up and down like the stock market or based on your performance. Jesus lived a perfect life in your place. He died in your place so that your performance, your behavior, your works would have nothing to do with your relationship with him. We're not saved by making promises to God that we can't keep. We're saved because God keeps his promises to us. We don't live for God in an attempt to earn his love. We live for God because we have his love. Our brother Paul understood this and it's why in his letter to the Romans he wrote, I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There's nothing more powerful, more wonderful, or more life-changing that I could share with you than the simple and glorious truth that God loves you. He loves you. And he will love you just as much tomorrow, no matter what you do between now and then. And he will love you just as much a year from now and 10 years from now. And he will love you just as much when you take your last breath on this planet. He loves you, and that is not gonna change. And to know that, to grasp that and believe that is to be free, is what it means to be free. So I pray that today you will grasp your freedom in Jesus, and you'll live in your freedom in Jesus, and you won't try to earn his favor or his love because you already have it. You already have it. Let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, your grace is, it's unlike anything. There's nothing that we can compare it to. It is higher, it is deeper, it is greater, it is stronger, it is more beautiful than anything. There's no point of comparison. And Father, I just thank you that you lived our life through Jesus. That he died in our place. That when we stand before you, it's Jesus' life that we've lived. It's Jesus' death that has paid for our sins. And so, Father, I pray that we would stop living with any type of burden as though that tape is gonna be played in heaven one day. When we know for a fact that the life that's gonna be looked at is Jesus. His name crossed out, our name written in his place. Father, would you help us to grasp that? We need a revelation of your grace and of the victory we have in you. Lord, I know that there might be some of us in here that have been following you for decades and we've we've never really grasped this. Now, Father, I pray by the power of your spirit, Lord, that you would let that happen this evening, that you would give us understanding of what it means that we truly have victory in you, that we are secure in you, that we didn't earn our way into your kingdom, we don't maintain our place in your kingdom. It's Jesus at the beginning, Jesus in the middle, and Jesus at the end. Thank you for loving us.